which generated motivation and listen to the story of how the Buddha became ordained and how some of his disciples became ordained. To do it with the motivation to follow in their footsteps and especially to gain the Buddha's realizations of full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So every year now I always talk about the Buddha's life at the beginning because I love telling the story and because um, the Buddha taught in more ways than one. He not only taught by the teachings he gave, but he taught by the example of how he lived. And uh, I think people need to remember that the Buddha was a monastic. You know, with all this talk in the U.S. and the West of Buddhism is now for the lay people, no, no, no. You know, we have to remember that our teacher is a monastic, and there was a reason for it. There was a purpose for it. And so, what what was that? Uh, so I'll tell about the Buddha's life in, in a way of answering that. And also because I think there's many ways in which the Buddha's life, or put it this way, we we can find analogies between the Buddha's life and our life. Now we may say, well, Buddha lived 2,600 years ago, and he was a prince in ancient India. That has nothing to do with me. But actually, you know, there's many things in terms of family dynamics, family expectations that are very similar to to our lives or at least part of our lives. Okay, and then I also want to tell the story of uh, Ratnapala who's one of the Buddha's uh, disciples, how he got ordained. Because both of these these stories um, tell us about the motivation for becoming a monastic. And the key to becoming a monastic is our motivation, you know, is our state of mind. And if you have a strong motivation and a clear motivation for the correct reason, then becoming a monastic becomes very joyful, yeah? And, uh, you know, you can face the difficulties that arise due to the ignorance, anger, and attachment. But if we don't have a good motivation, if our motivation is kind of unclear and sloppy, then as soon as attachment comes up in the mind, uh, we get completely disoriented, you know. And instead of realizing attachment as the problem, we see the ordination as the problem. Okay. Uh, one thing that one of my teachers said very early on was he said, Dharma practice is easy. It's the mind that makes it difficult. (laughs) 
you know and it was a very good you know pithy slogan there because it's really true you know um, we all say oh Dharma practice is so hard I can't do it but it's not the practice itself that's difficult it's our, our conceptions our disturbing emotions that actually cause the difficulty so if we remember that then when these things come up instead of getting dissuaded from the path we instead identify the things that are the real harm the real damage and it actually makes our determination to be free and our bodhicitta much stronger so the Buddhist life once upon a time so this is it's kind of legendary how much is true you know I'm sure there's some embellishment but it doesn't matter you know because uh, there, there's something quite beautiful in it so he was the uh, born the son of the uh, there were republics in India at that time you know and um, his father was kind of like the king of the republic the leader of the republic so he was born Gotama you know um, as, as the son of, of this king and uh, like all children he wanted to please his parents and uh, his parents had certain expectations of him when he was born um, there were some um, astrologers or fortune tellers who came to the palace and said to the king well your son will either be a great uh, political leader or a great uh, spiritual leader and so his dad thought I don't want any of this spiritual stuff you know I want my son to be a great king with wealth and power and you know fame and all of this kind of stuff kind of like our parents you know want I mean what do parents want for the parents are thinking of this life they're not thinking of future life happiness you know they're thinking of this life's happiness so they want us to be happy in the same way that they were happy and Thomas' father was happy because he had a big palace and he had several wives and you know and a lot of power and you know this whole thing so that's what he wanted for his child okay kind of like our parents so um Gautama was able to fulfill some of his father's uh, expectations and you know became very learned and a very great athlete kind of anything there was to excel in he was the you know he was the real perfect child yeah, so we always kind of tried to be but never made it but he kind of you know uh, did that at the same time he was also showing some some spiritual inclinations you know when he was 10 years old or something he was sitting under a rose apple tree and just went into samadhi and uh, you know one time he had a, a quarrel with his cousin Devadatta because um, his cousin shot a swan and Gautama ran and picked it up and you know had it tended to and healed it and so a fight arose between the two cousins with Devadatta saying it's mine because I, I shot it and Gautama saying no it's mine because I saved it and they brought it to their elders you know as we often did in quarrels with our uh, siblings and cousins and the elders said no in fact it does belong to Gautama because he saved its life 
Okay, so there were certain things happening when he was a kid that indicated that, you know, there's some compassion here, there's something. He's not totally following the, you know, the party line. And then um, as he grew up, his father kept him in a very sheltered environment. You know, he certainly didn't want him to know anything about suffering because he didn't want his kid to suffer, but he also knew that if this kid learned anything about suffering it might increase that kind of spiritual inclination which he didn't want to do because he wanted to send to you know run the family business of running the, the, the kingdom so he was very very protected as a child never saw anything negative or bad or distressing in any way but um I don't know about you, I grew up in a very kind of protected family and yet I was quite aware due to the media that there was a lot more to life than I was seeing and experiencing and uh, I wanted to go out and see and experience what it was and so I think the Buddha had that same kind of curiosity that many of us had about life Uh, we knew there was something more to what we were seeing and so he snuck out of the palace Okay, now, we might have snuck out when we were young. We usually snuck out to do kind of mischievous things. But he uh, snuck out to see what what life was really about. So the first time he went out, he saw uh, a sick person, which he had never really seen before. And he asked his charioteer, what's that? And his charioteer explained to somebody who's sick. And Gautama said, you know, what's the story with that, you know? And the charioteer explained, well, everybody gets sick, you know, this body is, you know, the the elements in the body are not stable, they they don't, they aren't always in balance, so sickness is quite a natural thing, it happens to all of us. So that made him quite thoughtful, you know, uh, Gautama, when he heard that. So, you know, he went back and uh, I guess his charioteer didn't snitch and tell his father that he had gone out. Uh, So he snuck out again with his charioteer. And this time he saw an old person kind of walking down the road, bent over, you know, like we were talking the other night when you sit down, it's like a sack of potatoes when you get up. It's, you know, great, great effort and just moving so slowly and bent over and wrinkles and gray hair and, you know, no teeth and the whole thing. And again he asked his, his charioteer, what is this, you know? And then the charioteer explained, you know, it's an old person and aging happens to all of us and this is, you know, the situation of being old is going to happen, you know, to you too. So that again made Gautama very thoughtful. What, you know, boy, you know, I have this body that's kind of young and great and brings me a lot of pleasure, but, you know, look what kind of future I have as an old person. Okay? Then the third time he went out of uh, the palace, he saw a corpse. And, uh, you know, in India, Nowadays, uh, especially when I first went there, I first went to India in 73, uh, you know, you see dead bodies in the streets, in the railway station, wherever. 
and uh, you know so he saw a dead body we don't often see dead bodies how many of you have seen dead, seen dead bodies oh most of you have but you know how many of us have seen dead bodies that haven't been embalmed and nicely laid out yeah you know usually when we see dead bodies they look very nice don't they and they're embalmed and faces peaceful and there's kind of satin cushion cloth cushions around them and looks like they're sleeping but you know kind of a naturally dead dead body is you know doesn't look like that so again his uh, charioteer explained to him what what death was and you know he was so shocked by that you know the end of life and you know kind of everything you had your whole ego identity everything you are is just you know like a snap of the fingers gone um so he went back and was really quite thoughtful about all of that you know kind of what's going on that I have this body and this is what's happening to my body and what's the story here that this happens to everybody you know you couldn't find anybody who wasn't subject to aging sickness and death and then the fourth time he went out he saw a mendicant India at that time had many kinds of spiritual mendicants who were going about practicing some kind of ascetic practices and looking for moksha or liberation you know how do we get liberated from this uh, cycle of birth and death and his charioteer again explained to him what this wandering mendicant was and what he was doing and why he was doing it and you know the idea some voice somebody's trying to get out of this somebody's seeking a remedy somebody's trying to eliminate the cause of aging sickness and death made him really very thoughtful um, now as part of his success when he was growing up of course he married the most beautiful woman because that's the only value a woman can possibly have is to be beautiful I think she must have been intelligent too but they don't talk about her as such that she was one of the first nuns so I think she was must have been quite bright um, <laughs> anyway he got married and he you know had a child his child was just an infant and uh, and you know in the evening he would relax with all the dancing girls you know he didn't have to go outside to the disco or to the pub but you know they all came to the palace and um, and you know amused himself with all the fun and dancing and then everybody fell asleep at the end of the big festival and when he woke he saw these beautiful dancing girls who were just you know kind of normally kind of women would just really excite him and they were all kind of lying there and you know how people are when they sleep it's like your arms are all over the place and your mouth's open you know? <laughs> and, you know and so they didn't look kind of quite so gorgeous you know drooling and you know, I mean you know how we are when we sleep we all don't look like Shirley Temple do they <laughs> Susie cream cheese. Um, so, 
he saw all of that and he thought, you know, I really want to find out the truth. I want to find out what life is all about. And, you know, why do I have to get old and sick and die? Why does everybody have to do this? What's the meaning of my life if I just get old and sick and die? And what's the purpose of the whole thing? So he, um, you know, couldn't talk openly with his parents. So again, he snuck out of the palace and he ran away. And his charioteer drove him a certain distance and then he shed his royal clothing and he took off his earrings. That's why when you look on that image of the Buddha, he has long earlobes. Symbolizes because he was a prince once upon a time and, you know, wore big earrings that made his earlobes kind of long. And so he divested himself of all the jewelry, all the finery, and he just put on the rags of a mendicant, a wanderer. And he uh, cut off his hair. The men had long hair. He cut off his hair with a sword and, you know, and then sent the charioteer back to the palace. Of course, his parents were very, very upset by what happened. You know, this was not what was supposed to happen. It was not what they had, you know, in mind for the future of their child. But, you know, there he was. He just ran away and didn't say goodbye. And he went to study with some of the great spiritual teachers of his age. And he mastered everything they had to teach. And he mastered it so well. They were usually higher states of samadhi, very deep states of concentration. He mastered them so well that some of his teachers offered him to become the leader of the community or to co-lead the community with them. So that was an incredible honor, you know, to his meditative abilities. But he himself knew that he wasn't liberated. Okay, so he—it's interesting. He didn't have uh, the one of pretension. Yeah, he didn't pretend to be highly realized when he wasn't. That he realized he wasn't. You know that he still wasn't liberated. And so, you know, both of the times, you know, he had to say goodbye to those teachers and then keep on looking. So he ran into some other mendicants. Uh, five others and so they all went off to a forest uh, in what is now Bihar state in in India Uh, at that time there was a running river and there was a forest now it's a dry sandy dried up river and you know kind of a scraggly forest Uh, and he went there and he had the idea because it was quite popular in those times that if you tortured your body, you know, if you were very extremely ascetic, then all the lust, all the attachment from the body would go away. Okay, so he went to practice for six years. And he, you know, I guess he thought, I have so much attachment to food, I'm not going to eat. So he ate one grain of rice a day for six years. And he got so thin that when he touched his belly button, he felt his backbone. Okay? And he just practiced meditation, you know, with his five friends, not eating these very ascetic practices, not sleeping so much, really pushing, pushing, you know. And for six years he did that, and then he realized, hey, I'm still not enlightened. You know? I've been doing all this ascetic self-torture, and it hasn't gotten me enlightened. 
and so then he decided to, to strengthen his body by eating something and so when he left his friends you know uh, and went out in search of food his friends just you know made fun of him and ridiculed him and oh there's Gotama this incredible softy he's you know he's given up and he's eating again and he's just so self-indulgent and you know really trashing him um, but he didn't care he knew what he had to do and so um, this one young woman Sujata offered him some food and he ate the food and then he crossed the river you know there's always a symbolism he crossed the river and he went to sit under a Bodhi tree in what is now modern day Bodhgaya and he made the determination I'm not going to get up from the seat until I attain full enlightenment uh, and as you know when he sat down of course we, we all know that we have the best of intentions when we sit and meditate too but what happens yeah all sorts of other things happen <laughs> in our mind don't they you know we're like sitting and I'm going to meditate is very concentrated and really do my sadhana and then you know it's like something else happens so the same thing started to happen with him you know and so you know what happened well first he had this whole military display going on in his mind as the story goes Mara who is some kind of like trickster you know sent uh, manifested he made his uh, children manifest as all these soldiers and warriors and demons and whatever who were assaulting him and so that's kind of like when we meditate and we think of all these people who did nasty things to us and we get really angry in our meditation you know that yeah and also did this and they're threatening that and this is harming me and that's harming me and we get scared and we get angry and you know so this is the same kind of experience the Buddha had um, and he handled it by taking all the weapons and transforming them into flowers so it became a rain of flowers so you know what that symbolizes is doing the meditation on loving kindness and compassion yeah, meditations on patience to calm the anger so then Mara you know sent some more of his children who manifested as these really gorgeous women you know dancing and trying to seduce him and that's kind of like us when we sit down to meditate then our mind you know goes nutty with attachment and sometimes it's attachment to food or attachment to sex or attachment to wealth or attachment to power you know our mind just gets distracted by all of our attachment so it's, it was the same thing that happened to the Buddha so he dealt with it by um, transforming them all into old hags <laughs> and then they kind of you know uh, escaped away so that indicates in our meditation you know instead of getting entranced by all this beauty you know the beautiful objects that that were invented um, to see them as they really are and see their disadvantages yeah, and yeah just see them for what they are that they really aren't all that bad our mind is making them out to be there's many disadvantages to them uh, and so on and so in that way freeing our mind from that clinging and attachment 
Okay, uh, and then as he went through the, the different watches of the night, he gained certain realizations. His, his first realization was he was able to see all of his previous lives. Now, many of us may say, far out, I want to know all my previous lives. But, you know, we say that from the viewpoint of ego, don't we? I want to know all my previous lives because I'm sure I was, you know, you know, Peter the Great and Cleopatra and Jesus and everybody else, you know. I mean, I'm sure I had all these very wonderful previous lives. But if you think about it, you know, they say that since we've been wandering in samsara from beginningless time, under the influence of ignorance, attachment, and anger, that we've been everything and done everything in samsara. So that means in our previous lives we've been murderers, we've been rapists, we've been drug addicts, we've been, you know, we've not, you know, we've done all sorts of incredible things, okay? Uh, you know, we usually say, oh, Peter the Great, but, you know, if you look at any of these. Uh, these great leaders, most of them have incredibly heavy karma from killing. Yeah, you think of it. Yeah, a lot of power in this life and then a lot of negative karma from killing. Anyway, you know, if you think of it really, realizing our previous lives, you have to have a lot of mental fortitude to do that. Now, could you imagine having a recollection of a previous life in, in which you, you tortured somebody or killed them or, you know, raped them or whatever? I mean, that would be horrible to remember, don't you think? Yeah? So I think just the fact that he was able to remember all of that and deal with it, you know, that takes a certain strength of mind and strength of character to do that. And so, of course, by remembering all of his previous lives, you know, the, the times when he had the highest things in cyclic existence as well as the times when he had the lowest things, he began to see really that cyclic existence is totally unreliable and unstable. You know, and you go up and down. Up to the highest realms, down to the lowest realms. Up to the highest realms, down to the lowest realms. And so he was able to see that that had been his whole experience from beginningless time. And so that realization generates, very, you know, if somebody has the teachings in the right mind state, when they see that, then they have very strong renunciation of cyclic existence. You know, it's not like, oh, guess what I was in my previous life. Ho, 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 wasn't I great? I was this great, whatever. It was like, ah, you know. I've done all of this, been all these things, it's gotten me absolutely nowhere, and in the process I've caused a lot of harm. Okay, so that generated, you know, very intense renunciation of cyclic existence and a very intense determination to be free. Then in the second watch of the night, um, he, his samadhi was so deep that he saw the dying and rebirth of all sentient beings okay how they were going to die how they were going to get reborn okay now think about that one what would what would that it be like to have that kind of realization in your mind knowing how everybody was going to die knowing what they were going to be reborn as 
Would that be a comforting thing to be able to see? No, not at all comforting. Yeah. So again, you know, he had very strong mind to be able to bear that. And when you see how sentient beings die and get reborn, and you know they're human being and they're just trying to be happy and not cause and not have misery, and yet their ways of being happy are totally confused. So they create so much negative karma and as a result they get born in unfortunate realms and then they stay in those unfortunate realms for such a long time because they don't have the intelligence you know it's like an animal or whatever to be able to hear and understand and practice the Dharma and so in, in witnessing this about all, all sentient beings of course you know how are you going to react to that in a spiritual way it has to you know generate in you very intense compassion no don't you think if you're going to really face how how sentient beings die and then get reborn under the influence of their karma and you see this continued confusion and dukkha and misery again and again and again I mean, the, the only way to react in the same way is to have compassion. Okay, so he had that compassion, and that compassion acted as the fuel for his bodhicitta, the wish to become fully enlightened, so that he would have all the skill and power needed to be able to benefit others in the most effective way. Okay, so that was the second watch of the night. Then in the third watch of the night, he realized through his own experience, through direct knowledge, the cessation of all the defilements in the mind. Okay? So he realized the ultimate nirvana. So this was done through meditating on wisdom because when you have, you're, you're able to have the direct perception with a wisdom mind of the nature of reality then you see that what ignorance has been grasping at as existence does not exist. Okay, so you eliminate the ignorance, then the attachment, anger, and uh, concealment, and pretension, and uh, dissimulation all fall apart, and then the karma from those, you know, doesn't happen, and then the the dukkha that results from them don't, don't happen. Okay? Um, so he was able to actualize this in his own experience and through that see that he had eliminated not only the afflictive obscurations preventing uh, liberation but also the cognitive obscuration the very subtle stains on the mind that prevented full enlightenment or omniscience okay, so the Buddha saw that through his own experience when he Uh, got up from that meditation he was a fully enlightened being and when he thought about you know who shall I share this experience with he thought nobody's ever going to understand you know here are all these sentient beings who are off chasing money and wealth and power and sex and who's going to listen to me if I tell them that that stuff isn't going to bring them happiness you know nobody's going to listen and so as the story goes, you know, the great gods, you know, I forget if it's Indra and Brahma, whoever, they came and they requested the Buddha to teach. And so I think what that part of the story indicates is, you know, Indra, Brahma, these were highly respected worldly beings. 
But even they with all their power were not liberated and they went to the Buddha and requested him to teach. And so although at the beginning he had declined to teach and he never thought to do it, then he later on did because of their request. Because they said there's some beings with little dust in their eyes, in their wisdom eye, you know. So some beings will understand you. So he, uh, when he thought, okay, I'll teach. And then he thought, well, who am I going to teach? So the first people that came to his mind were his two previous teachers. You know, because of their kindness and their level of spiritual attainment, he thought, well, they would get it. But then he saw with his clairvoyance that they had both died. So imagine, you know, being one of those spiritual teachers so close to meeting an actual enlightened being that, you know, having died. So then he thought, well, what about my five friends that I was doing the ascetic practices with? So he saw that they were in Sarnath. He was in Bodh Gaya at the time. So he decided to walk from Bodh Gaya to Sarnath to go and teach them. Now, of course, when they were in this place called Deer Park, and uh, when they saw him coming, that from a distance they all said to each other, there's that softy Gautama, he gave up on the practice, he's living in luxury now, look, he's no longer so skinny. Um, when he comes, we're not going to set out a seat for him, we're not going to you know, offer him any water. These were standard kind of practices, like you know, somebody comes to your home, you open the front door and you offer them a seat and give them a cup of tea. He said, we're not going to do any of that when he comes, because he's just a lazy good-for-nothing. But when he came, yeah, somehow the, the, his vibe, you know, kind of the energy around him was such that they couldn't not show respect to him. And so they prepared a seat and offered him water and you know, and, and just automatically because of his presence they showed respect and uh, and so they asked him you know, kind of something happened, you know, tell us about it and so he, he gave his first teaching which was on the Four Noble Truths and so uh, those disciples um, one of them, I think during stream entry at that time I can't remember, but within a very short time, all of them had become arhats, had become liberated beings. And so, uh, and they requested ordination. Okay? So he had become a wandering mendicant, and then they be asked permission to become as well. The reason, you know, if you look, why did the Buddha become a wandering mendicant, a monastic? Well, because he saw that he couldn't practice in the palace, you know. It would be really difficult when you have to, you know, hear all your, your, you know, well, first of all, you're expected to go to all these parties and all these social functions, and then you have to run this kingdom, you know, and you have to manage the accounts and settle disputes and fight wars and, you know. And he just, you know, he saw that doing all those kinds of worldly activities doesn't leave him with any time to practice, so that's why he left. You know, and why did he divest himself of all the finery and the ornaments and shave his head? It was because he realized that all of that stuff didn't bring any happiness and basically 
you know, when when we use it, it just draws more attention to us, doesn't it? You know, oh look, I'm so beautiful because I have jewelry, or I'm so attractive because I have certain clothes, and it's just always drawing attention to look at me. You know, and so, you know, to get rid of of all of that distraction and the confusion and the uh, pressures of the time, pressures of the time, then he became a monastic. And also because, you know, as somebody who wandered from place to place, uh, you know, it was, it's called living the homeless life, okay? There were householders and there, there were those who had left home. So when you were a left home one, then you didn't have all the responsibilities that come with a home. You know, because if you have kids and you have a spouse and you have a social life and, then, you know, you have a checkbook to balance and you have to put your kids through college and you have to do things that everybody else does so that you look normal because your kid's going to school and they don't want to have weird parents and so you have to do act like all the other parents with the parents of your kid you know your kid's friends and you know so he just decided you know I'm not going to get involved in all of that I just want my time free to myself so I can dedicate it to practice and not have a lot of possessions because the more possessions you have the more stuff you have to take care of you know so I always talk about you know computer hell anybody ever been in computer hell when you want to use your computer and it's broken yeah and you really need to do something and your computer doesn't work you're in computer hell yeah. and then there's car hell which is when you go and want to go somewhere and your car doesn't work and then you have to get your car towed and then you have to figure out you know how to get it fixed and how to pay for the repairs and pay for the insurance and this and that so you know the more possessions we have the more auxiliary hell realms we have um, to you know that have to take care of them yeah and it's true isn't it yeah the more stuff we have the more problems we have because it all breaks that's its nature so he wanted to live a simple life without a lot of possessions just to free the mind of the hassle of taking care of so much stuff yeah um and so, you know, when he taught his five disciples, they also had the same intention. You know, we just want to live a simple life. We want to devote ourselves to practice. We want to make ourselves dependent on the kindness of others so that we really experience their kindness and it motivates us to practice. And so when you give, you know, and, uh, when you give up buying and cooking your own food, you're making yourself dependent on others. Okay, so at the time of the Buddha, you know, the, the wandering mendicants, they didn't cook, they didn't buy any food, they just had their alms bowl, they went into town in the morning, received alms, ate it, and that was it. And whatever they received, they were happy with it. They didn't say, you know what, I don't like green peppers, you know, can you give me some red peppers instead? And, uh, you know, can you make the rice? I don't like the noodles. 
or you know I want more of this and less of that and don't put in so much spice you know they, they weren't um, ordering their food just whatever people gave them they accepted with appreciation and ate it and so that is a training in itself you know just to you know you like the food you don't like the food it doesn't matter you know uh, because tomorrow morning it all looks the same yeah so like or don't like you know if it keeps you alive then you eat it yeah so that that was kind of how they lived in a very simple lifestyle like that so after the you know these first five uh, people became became monastics and the Buddha started you know going to various towns and places because of the wandering lifestyle and he uh, you know many people turned out to hear him teach and he uh, spent 45 years he was enlightened at age 35 and then he spent 45 years just going throughout northern India from place to place and living his life as a monastic and when people asked him to teach he taught and uh, you know so according to the audience then he would give a certain teaching and he taught he talked to everybody you know sometimes because uh, the way his day would go was you know after after rising and doing some meditation and going to collect alms and then eating you know the meal for the day and then going to a park or some kind of peaceful place to do some meditation and then in the evening very often people would come and you know he would give teachings and then some more meditation uh, you know at night time and so it, it's you know sometimes people came in the morning to visit him or sometimes in the afternoon sometimes it was Brahmin, Brahmins who were the religious elite of his time uh, the very respected uh, social class who had a lot of wealth and power sometimes it was mendicants who came to see him who would belong to other different religious traditions and they would have debates sometimes it was royalty who came to visit him they would come with their elephants and their you know ride on their elephants to go to the forest where the Buddha was was and visit him um, you know sometimes it was courtesans and prostitutes and all sorts of people came and you know he spoke to all of them rich people poor people educated uneducated farmers you know doesn't matter Buddha was open to everybody and then he would teach according to you know their disposition so he did that until he was uh, 80 and then he passed away and in the process you know of his teaching then many many people wanted to ordain and follow the lifestyle that he was teaching because they saw that that monastic lifestyle was very conducive for gaining the spiritual realizations okay so why is a monastic lifestyle conducive for gaining the realizations well part of it is you know what we just talked about it's a simple lifestyle you don't have to take care of a lot of things you know you don't have to worry about your social life you don't have to worry about you know going to, to weddings and uh, family activities you don't have to to you know 
do all this stuff that everybody else is doing. You don't work for a living, okay? And you don't have an income. And you don't have a savings that you have to manage. And so you live extremely simply, kind of bare bones, and, and really devote your life to your spiritual practice. So that's how, you know, they really lived at the time of the Buddha. As, you know, the Sangha evolved over the centuries, uh, first what happened is, um, you know, because at the beginning they were all wandering, you know, they would sleep under the root of a tree, you didn't have a building, you just slept where you were and, you know, got up and then wandered some more to get your food in the morning and then, you know, settled in a park to meditate. Uh, but what happened is after a while, in the, if you've been in India, they have these long monsoons in the summer, the rainy season, and there's an incredible number of insects, and the rains are pouring, and that's when the rice grows because of the rain. And so the, um, the non-Buddhists kind of wouldn't wander around a lot at, the, at that time, especially the Jains. The Jains were very strict about not killing any kind of living being. You know, so the, so the Jains with the emphasis on, on not killing. And so the, some of the lay people said to the Buddha, well, how come your disciples are, keep on walking around and, uh, you know, wandering during this time? They're stepping on bugs and killing bugs and they're destroying our rice crops when they're going from place to place. So, uh, so then the Buddha instituted what's called the rainy season retreat. And it usually lasts for three months, although there's a shorter version where you do it for six weeks. And the purpose was to stay in one place so that you didn't destroy the crops, you didn't kill the bugs, and so on. And so during those, six, the, those three months, then the Sangha stayed in one place. And it was usually a place... Because uh, lay people would start to offer property and buildings and, and housing to the Sangha. Okay, so the Sangha as a community would possess these gardens or whatever uh, and the property, and then they would stay permanently for those three months. And then after that time, then they would wander some more until the next rainy season. Okay, um, as time went on, then, you know, they became more and more settled, you know, as the centuries went on. And they wandered less because it just became more convenient to stay in a monastery with like-minded practitioners and do your practice there. So then, you, you know, you had the advent of, of a, a settled sangha uh, living in monasteries. Um, our name here, Shravasti Abbey. Shravasti was a place in ancient India. Uh, it still exists in India nowadays. Uh, and it was one of those places where the Buddha spent 25, I mean, it was the place where he spent 25 rainy seasons. So it was a good part of, of his uh, monastic life. In the summer, he would dwell at Shravasti. And uh, he dwelled there because there was one. Uh, there were a couple of benefactors who offered the property and the dwellings uh, to the Sangha and then offered food to the Sangha to sustain them during the rainy season. So one of those was Anatapindika, who was a wealthy merchant. And so that's why on our property we have Anatapindika's Park. 
Yeah, some of you were pulling napri there yesterday. Yeah, uh, this kind of meadow going down the road here, out in front of the meditation hall, is called the Thalas Park. She was another benefactor of the Sangha who offered a park and residence to the Buddha and the Sangha uh, during the Buddha's lifetime. So we named uh, one of our, our parks after her. Yeah. So. This, this happened, you know, you had this system of benefactors coming so that the Sangha was lived in this interdependent way with the lay people. Okay? So the, the job of the Sangha was to keep their precepts and to practice diligently and to, uh, offer, to be a, an example to the lay people of people who were striving for Liberation, or who had attained so, and and without, uh, you know, pretension, but living very honestly and gaining those realizations, that was seen as the job of the sangha, and then the monastics participated in this by being generous and, and offering the material wherewithal for the sangha to practice. The lay people also uh, participated by keeping precepts themselves. So they had the five laid precepts, and on new and full moon, they would keep the eight precepts. So that's why tomorrow, it's new moon, that's new moon tomorrow, so we're going to be keeping the eight precepts tomorrow. This is what they've been doing since the time of the Buddha. Okay? And then the lay people also practice meditation to the best of their ability. Yeah? So it was a very interdependent relationship. If the Sangha didn't behave properly, the, the, the uh, lay people, you know, got upset and wouldn't feed them. So it was a very good impetus to keep your vows well because, uh, you know, if you were rude or discourteous or demanding or a pain in the neck, they weren't going to give you any alms. Yeah. So that, that kind of works, you know, at the beginning to stimulate you to practice. Uh, at the beginning, there were no precepts. Yeah, everybody just became a monastic and did their practice. What happened after a while is people began to misbehave. And they started to do things that were either uh, morally incorrect or things that caused inconvenience and distress to the lay people and then the lay people complained to the Buddha you know gee you know your monk over here is so rude and you know demanding and and so then the Buddha would make a precept saying you know after this the monastic should not behave in this way so all of the various precepts we have came about because of specific situations that happened in which somebody misbehaved. Okay? And so it got reported to the Buddha. He, he made a precept about it. Yeah? And so if you look, you know, among the monastic precepts, there are those which are naturally negative, which means that these are kind of ethically you know, harmful actions, meaning that, like, almost everybody, except, uh, you know, for every ordinary being who does that, they usually have some kind of afflicted motivation, and then these actions also cause harm to self and others. So, uh, some of them are naturally negative actions, like killing or stealing or lying, things like that. 
And then there's some precepts we have that are not naturally negative. Uh, in other words, there are things that people can do with a neutral motivation or a positive motivation, but you know, any kind of different motivation. But the Buddha restricted the Sangha from doing them because it caused inconvenience or, or it, it was distressful to the lay people. Okay? So, for example, you know, we have a precept not to eat in the evening. The reason for that was because it was very inconvenient for the lay people to have to cook three meals a day or to have monastics coming to their home three times a day asking for food. You know, it was really difficult for them. And also, it became dangerous for the monastics because they were wandering in the city and falling into <laughs> ditches and spraining their ankles in holes and doing all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so the Buddha decided, no, you just go in once and, and, you know, collect your alms then and that's it. So there's many of our precepts, uh, you know, that, that were made simply you know, to, to regulate the Sangha so that the, the monastics could live together very well within themselves and be a harmonious community and also so that they could live harmoniously with the lay people and, and be an inspiring factor in, in the lay people's lives. Okay, so that's how it was originally set up. You know, things have changed now in the, in the ensuing uh, centuries. Uh, in Thailand, the climate is such, because it's very hot, that they still go on Pindapat, which is the alms round. But very often what they do now is the lay people will drive them in cars to the town where they do their alms round. You know, I always kind of wonder about that, but, you know, <laughs> they'll, they'll do that, or the lay people will bring food to the monastery. Um, West Buddhism spread to China, for example. They, uh, the monastics chose not to always live in habitated places because when you did that, you got drawn into the politics. Yeah, and so many of the Chinese Sangha went into the mountains so that they didn't have to deal with the emperor and the politicians in the city. But in order to do so, they had to grow their own food. And so one of the initial precepts we had was not to dig the earth but in in Zen temples for example they often will grow their own food and you know the reason for that is you know how that how they kept that precept got modified is because they were living outside the city um, in in the situation of Tibet uh, also the monasteries were outside of the city so they didn't do the the um, the, you know the pindapot the alms round uh, we have one precept not to keep food overnight so monasteries started keeping food so what they did is made it so that the monastery itself could keep food but individuals couldn't okay and so as you know for example here at the abbey we have certain areas where we've designated that food can be kept overnight and certain areas where food cannot be kept overnight you know and we consider all the food the property of the monastic community not our own individual property and so in that way you try and live according to the spirit of it so there's many of these kinds of adjustments that went on nowadays you know, as Buddhism is coming to the West, 
you see a lot of adjustments getting made and sometimes I don't know if they're being made with a lot of thought and consideration behind that behind them um, so for example uh, you know technically speaking in according to our monastic vows we don't touch people of the opposite sex now here you are living in a culture where people touch each other and people who are strangers even give each other hugs and sometimes people will think that it's very unfriendly if you don't shake hands with them okay so what do you do do you do you just go like this and people you know people are left with their hand out <laughs> reaching for you and you're like this uh, or do you shake hands with them what happens when they go to hug you do you just stand there do you hug them back um, so all these kinds of questions are coming up now and what I'm seeing is that in the Tibetan monasteries at least they're not forming any kind of policies and so they're leaving it up to the individuals to decide and it seems to me that that creates a lot of confusion yeah and so among a lot of the western sangha I see the same thing you know they're they're not sure what to do and nobody's saying so they do whatever they feel and and so then you get people behaving in all sorts of ways and in their mind they're saying well I'm doing it because that's that's the way for the society but then what happens is then the the sangha starts acting just like the lay people yeah which is not so good because then they aren't providing that role model of being like a sangha they aren't appearing disciplined um, and they aren't being disciplined uh, and, and so you know internally you become less mindful and then your relationship with uh, the lay people you know as a community also declines yeah. so for example sometimes you'll see uh, you know His Holiness will be teaching and there will be Western Sangha there or Tibetan Sangha I've seen do the same thing and they see their old friends and you know opposite sexes and they go up hi I haven't seen you so long give each other hugs and it's just it doesn't look good you know and it's also not good for people's own minds to have that much kind of physical contact with somebody of the opposite sex this is assuming everybody's straight and of course not everybody's straight, you know, so you have to adapt it to your own sexual, you know, orientation, but you also have to adapt it to, to the society, you know, because the society doesn't know whether you're straight or gay. Yeah, so you have to act like you're straight, and if you're gay, also not hug people who you're sexually attracted to. Okay? But, you know, but because the purpose of the vow is, you know, not to do something that's going to incite any kind of attraction. And the purpose of the vow also is to not look like you just, you know, oh, hi, Joe, I haven't seen you for so long. You know, just like ordinary people behave because then, you know, the lay people look and go, oh, why should I support you? You know, you're kind of acting loud and uncontrolled just like me <laughs> yeah so um, I think that there needs to be you know much more discussion and kind of some standards set of course there's no body to set the standards so here you know we're doing you do it monastery by monastery so at the Abbey we have our own house rules and this is you know how Shirosti Abbey monastics behave and so it's similar you know this kind of happened in the Chinese temples and the Tibetan temples they all had their own house rules 
about how you do certain things. So it adds some kind of guidance about how, how you behave. So you may find that, different, that uh, monastics of different teachers will behave in different ways according to the house rules of their particular monastery. Okay, so you know, you just see that and just, just know that that happens and that if you ask a teacher, if, is such and such allowed? Well, if you go back to the vows, maybe it's not allowed, but then this teacher will make a dispensation for you to do that, but this teacher will say no. Yeah, and so, you know, just to, for you to be aware that that happened and that, you know, your job is to, to see kind of which kind of training is the best one for you. You know, if you want to live under the guidance of a teacher who's fairly strict, somebody who's medium, somebody who's very loose, you know, uh, because you'll see people living in all different sorts of ways now, especially in the West. Yeah, and I think it's kind of my personal opinion is that it's kind of at a crisis point in some ways, you know, because in order to uh, establish the monastic community in the West, people have to act as monastics. And if there isn't a community, then they don't get the training. Then they don't know what to practice and abandon just, you know, in terms of their physical and verbal behavior and they don't have any guidance on it, and then they just do whatever, and then, of course, you know, sometimes what they do makes defilements arise in the mind, or sometimes what they're doing make, uh, you know, the lay people kind of say, well, what's going on here? So that's why I feel it's quite important to live in a monastic community where you will get some guidance for how to live the vows, or at least to keep the spirit of the vows in this modern age. Because there are some of the precepts where it's very difficult to keep them literally because of the social structure or even the economic structure of society. So some adaptation has to be made, but I think it has to be made with thought and with some kind of consistency within monastic communities. Because if left to us as individuals, then we always do the easiest thing for us, don't we? for ourselves, don't we? Yeah, we always take the lowest grade. So, of course, you know, there's no precept, for example, saying don't watch television because there were no televisions at the time of the Buddha. Okay, so there's no precept that says you can't watch television. But if you look, there is a precept that says don't watch entertainment. Yeah? So then you have to think, well, television entertainment and what does television do to our mind? And why did the Buddha set up a precept about not watching entertainment? What happens to your mind when you watch entertainment? Yeah? Just look at your mind. After you watch entertainment, you know what happens to your mind. Okay? And then you ask yourself, is, is this mental state after I watch entertainment conducive for my spiritual practice? Is it? No, because you're distracted, you know, you've seen singing and dancing and the melodies are running through your mind and you want to dance and, you, you know, you've seen this, these dramas and plays and you want to get up and be a star or, you know, they've been kissing and hugging or they've been killing each other. Or, you know, you, you know, you get all revved up watching this kind of thing. So then you have to say, okay, well, 
if we're going to keep the intention of that precept why the Buddha set it up in our modern context then you know okay not watching television for entertainment if there's a documentary and the motivation is to learn something about society well there's a reason and purpose for that and that's not going to agitate your mind in the same way but if you're just watching entertainment for the sake of entertainment well you know to keep the 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 spirit of the precept then we're not going to do that and the same thing with surfing the internet yeah is it conducive for spiritual practice or do you spend a lot of time just visiting this side and that side and going here and there and then your mind is all thinking about all these things afterwards and uh, you know like you were saying yesterday you know when you really want or the day before when you really want something and you go to the, the place on the, the website that has it and you check out what you really want and all the characteristics and how much it costs if you're planning how to get the latest you know kind of widget of whatever kind so is that good for your mind is good for your spiritual practice yeah where does it leave you when you want to sit to meditate afterwards well you're you know you're doing the mandala offering and what you have in it is you know all the widgets that you want to buy for yourself you're not really offering anything to the Buddha yeah so you have to say okay well in keeping with the spirit of the precepts then you know using internet for certain kind of communication is good and it's valuable but using internet just for you know kind of distracting myself and indulging my attachments no you know that, that we're not going to do that and so that becomes a community rule and everybody does it and it becomes something easy to keep you know if you live on your own as a monastic well nobody's ever going to explain to you the meaning of the precepts you're never even going to think about this thing and you have your computer and you're just going to do what you want okay and so you know, the Buddha very much he set up the Sangha as a community you know the idea wasn't that you got ordained and then just lived on your own and, and did your own thing you know it was definitely a, a community Sangha is you know uh, it, it, you know one of the translations is assembly it's a community and there's definite reasons you know you know as they used as our parents used to tell us birds of a feather they flock together yeah and we become like the people we hang out with and so if you're living with a Sangha community that is practicing in a certain way just by the force of living with them and everybody doing things in a certain way it's going to help your own mind to practice in that way yeah whereas now what you see sometimes is is especially in the west is people get ordained and then they have their apartment in town and they have their job and um you know but but uh they're not really living a monastic life you know because you're kind of still living as a householder you have your car you have your flat you have your television you furnish the house whatever way you want nobody's living there to tell you you know that you're tra- transgressing any precepts nobody's there to, to correct your behavior uh, you're not living with your teachers so you're not getting any kind of instruction and you know so you put on your robes once in a while and think you're ordained but you're not really able to live a monastic life and so most of the people who try and live on their own after they're ordained especially if they do that immediately after ordination they you know most of them wind up not staying ordained um, because they don't have the happiness of the ordained life and they don't have the happiness of the lay life either 
now. So it's just so much easier. You now become a part of a community. You have your friends. You have people who understand what you're doing in your life, who support you. Uh, you know, I mean, I look at some of the people who I know who have gone and and just lived in the city and you know alone as a monastic right after they were ordained and you know and when I listen to their conversation I mean it's really clear that they haven't had any training because you know they haven't been in that situation where people point out to them certain behaviors about what is appropriate to talk about and what it isn't and how to talk about things and how not to talk about things and so I mean it's really kind of a tragedy because these people start out with such good intentions but then they aren't in a, in a situation that can where they can really cultivate that and so then they you know after a while just kind of say can't do it anymore which I, I feel is really kind of a tragedy for them mm-hmm. um, so I'm speaking about this because this is the reality you know of, of Westerners ordaining now especially in the Tibetan tradition um, in the Theravada tradition in the Chinese tradition you are supported by the communities you know, if you join a monastery, you are supported supported by that monastery. The Tibetans, not necessarily so. I used to think that it was just because they were a refugee culture, but it's not that. Even, you know, in old Tibet, they still had their own money and in many cases had to have their own support. You know, the monastery would give them some food, but not all of the food. But especially now that they're refugees, you know, they're trying to raise funds for their own communities in India. And, you know, they kind of look at Westerners as if we have money kind of all around us, uh, which is not the case. But, uh, you know, um, Westerners are not the priority of who to take care of for, for the Tibetan lamas. It's, it's you know, reestablishing their own monasteries in India or, or in Tibet and taking care of, of those people. And they're very happy to, to ordain Westerners, but we are not their priority of what, you know, who, who to take care of. And so that's why you find that, uh, you know, sometimes people will be ordained and they'll go right back to their apartment and ordain Friday, go back to work on Monday morning or whatever. Or they'll live at Dharma centers where you're living mostly with lay people and you'll get a Dharma education but you won't necessarily get monastic training because there may be a teacher there but, you know, he doesn't want to give monastic training because most of the people there are lay people. And then to live at a monastery, you see some of the monasteries established in the West and you have to pay to stay there. You know, when I was with at Dirty Pommel Monastery in the 80s, and, you know, the, the Dharma Center there gave us a, a horse shed, the horse stables to live in, which was very kind of them. But we had no funding whatsoever at all, you know. There's nobody to give us any money, and so we all had to come up with money on our own and pay for food and, you know, just to stay there. So that kind of thing... you know puts a lot of pressure on monastics because then you know like when I lived there then some people had to some people then you get these wealthy monastics whose family gives them money and then you get the rest of us who don't have money and then some people go out and get a job in the summer and come back with their money 
to pay to the monastery to live there. And then I had made a determination when I got ordained that I was not going to work for a living and get paid. And so I kind of, you know, had to do something to come up with it. Uh, so you get different classes of monastics. And I don't, you know, my experience has been that that's not really healthy in a monastic community. And if you look at the way the Buddha set things up, and I'll go into this later, um, there's various things that you share in a monastic community. And one is you share the same resources so that everybody has the same living standard, you know. And you don't have the rich monastics and the poor monastics. Um, in, in 1996, we had this uh, a program, a three-week program in Bodhgaya called Life as a Western Buddhist Nun. And Venerable Wu Yin, uh, one Chinese bhikshun, he was one of our teachers there. And she asked us all to do skits. And were you, were you there? It was an incredible program. And she asked us to do skits. So some of the Western nuns made this skit about... Uh, it was called Sonam Chempo and Sonam Chumpa, the one with great merit and the one with little merit. So there was, you know, the nun who had great merit and, you know, her family gave her money and so she could go here and study, she could go there for that teaching, she could, you know, had a beautiful altar and a great room and she could go wherever she wanted for teachings and retreats and didn't have to do any work in the monastery. And then there was the one with little merit who was scrubbing the floor and answering the telephone and teaching the lay people and introducing the Dharma and balancing the books and, and doing everything else, you know. And, and we just did it as a skit, but it was like so true if that's, you know, what, what was going on at that time. And so that's one thing I feel very strongly about at the Abbey is we all have the same lifestyle. And you don't have the situation of, you know, the people with money get to go listen to the Dalai Lama's teachings and the people who don't have to stay here. But rather, you know, we switch and we alter and sometimes you go and sometimes you, t- you don't go. Okay, I think that's quite important for a community. Anyway, I can go on and on and on and I have. And Tracy's probably wondering why we're so late. Okay. So why don't we just sit quietly right now? <laughs> and I'll tell you the story of Ratnapala uh, tomorrow, okay? <laughs> <laughs>